Amen. Okay, Pastor Brett. Sorry. Thanks, worship team. That was great. Ben, thank you as well. Um, one, of the, one of the joys of pastoring and ministry is watching people grow in their faith and their gifting. And, and I remember when we brought Ben Dick, who was just up here, uh, onto the elder board, one of the things that some of the elders do is they take rotation doing congregational prayers, you know. Uh, and the first time Ben came up here, he prayed so fast. Like, it was a race. And uh, it's truly so encouraging to see how comfortable Ben has grown into his leadership in, in the church, but also uh, being in front of, of the church that he helps to shepherd and encourage. And so it's, it's great to see the way you're growing in that. Um, it's great to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, I've uh, been looking forward to it. And uh, this morning I want to take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to chapter 2, verse 5. And uh, so I would invite you, just as I open up, just to find that in your Bible, put your uh, bookmark there, or put your finger there, open your phone, whatever, whatever works for you. A um, little background before we begin, the letter of Colossians is one of the Apostle Paul's letters that he writes while in prison. And his primary reason for writing the letter was to correct some type of false teaching that is going on, cropping up in this church. And it's quite hard to specifically point to what exactly this false teaching was. It seems that was most likely that it comes from some local Jewish or or pagan uh, belief. Uh, One such belief in that time was that it was quite common to call upon angels for help. Uh, and protection from evil, evil spirits. People would wear sort of a necklace, necklace or amulet and they would recite a, a chant or a, or a words to, to call on angels for protection. It's likely that this was the influence or something similar to this that was happening. And, and most likely it was some kind of shaman type person, uh, figure that had been part of the church or had come into the church or some following of the church people of someone like that outside of the church. Uh, but regardless, they're looking for some kind of extra spiritual guidance. And this false teaching is what Paul primarily addresses in this letter. And he powerfully illustrates the clear picture of Jesus' supreme lordship of the universe as the head of the church and the only one who can forgive sins. In short, Paul is clearly instructing his church, this church, that Christ is totally sufficient for all of its spiritual matters. One other thing is it's, it's important to note that Paul never actually visited the city of Colossae. Most likely a man named Epaphras probably traveled to Ephesus, heard Paul preach, and then brought this message back to his home city, and thus the church in Colossae was born. But Paul sees this church as his spiritual responsibility. So a little background before we jump into the text this morning. Let's read Colossians 124-25 together this morning. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generation, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works for me, in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come this morning and, uh, and hear from it. We pray that you would teach it through your spirit. In all things, Lord, it's not man who teaches the word. We may present it, we may speak it, but it is your spirit that pierces the heart. And so we pray that you would take your word and that you would pierce the heart of people today. Pray that you would encourage and challenge and convict through your spirit through this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you could sum up in one word what success in the Christian life would look like, the word faithfulness is probably one of the best words that we could come up with, if not the best word. And it's a word that Jesus himself emphasizes. For example, in admonishing his disciples, For his return, he was looking for faithful servants. He told the parable of the shrewd manager to illustrate their responsibility to be faithful in every way. And describing their role in the kingdom of God, Jesus told the parable of the talents to evaluate the disciples' stewardship and then commended them with, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says that as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel, we must be found faithful. And that's probably many of your desires here today, to hear your Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul was a great example of faithfulness. He rejoiced in his suffering, passionately shared the gospel, and was devoted to the church in helping others grow in maturity. And this was his joy. Many Christians today take the opposite approach to the church. Members and guests often, often adopt a consumer mindset, looking for the highest rate of return for the least amount of involvement or sacrifice. They desire preferences to be made, not transformations to happen. Much of this mindset comes from the culture around us. We want things to happen quick and easy, to happen our way and only our way, because the world tells us it should be like this. It should be easy. It should be quick. You should get what you want. But faithfulness, being faithful to our Savior, has nothing to do with our desires. It has everything to do with the desires of Christ and being faithful to those. 
And Paul is a great example of this, and this text gives us a good perspective on how we might be faithful servants of Christ. And so this morning, as we go through this text, it, it reminds us of one of the ways that we can walk in faithfulness with God. And it gives us this perspective from somebody, Paul, who does such a great job of being an example of what it means to be a faithful servant of Christ. Some people have elevated the apostles and saying, well, that was their role. We're not supposed to be faithful like them. But the reality is at the end of the day, the calling that Paul has to, to go and make disciples, to make the gospel known, is still the calling on each of us. He may have a specific area and a specific gift, but you have gifting too. And you have things that God is calling to you. And our responsibility is still to bring the gospel and to be faithful to the Lord with all of our lives. So verse 24 to 25 says, Now I rejoice in what is suffered for you, and I will fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. As faithful servants of Christ, the first things we, we must do is rejoice while suffering. Sounds exciting, right? There are two realities to these verses. The embracing of suffering and the endurance of suffering. And let me explain. The concept of suffering is woven throughout this passage. It's woven throughout much of the works and letters that Paul writes. The original terms carry the connotation of struggle and afflictions. Elsewhere, Paul uses the term used for suffering that appears in verse 25 to describe the sufferings that are common for all believers who follow Christ. Paul himself endured extreme forms of suffering. If you want to look at some of them, you could look in 2 Corinthians 11. And in Acts 9, we read that Paul has been called to this purpose of suffering by the Lord. Though the specific forms of his afflictions may have been unique, the nature and occurrence of them are typical for all of us would call Jesus our Savior. And they should be expected as part of faithfully serving him. But it's not suffering that's the focal point here. It's Paul's ability to rejoice in his suffering. And it's Paul's eternal perspective that allows him to rejoice in the midst of earthly circumstances. Paul recognizes that his personal role in suffering is part of a larger whole. His sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, along with those of other devoted believers, would result in the expansion of Christ's church. And so as a result, he could embrace suffering with joy. Similarly, the various afflictions we suffer for Christ should be embraced with an eternal perspective. Giving our lives for the cause of Christ will require sacrifice and suffering that this world will not comprehend. But it's a cause that we can embrace with joy as we follow Jesus' own example. Hebrews 12 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The idea of suffering as Christians is well known to us. The key that is being spoken about in these two verses is not the reality of suffering, like I said, but finding joy and being able to rejoice in it. Paul has embraced this reality and saying, I've become its servant. If we want to be faithful followers, how we respond to suffering is important, particularly how we embrace it and endure it. 
But the reality in our culture is that we don't endure a lot of suffering when it comes to our actual faith. Many of us have had painful suffering that is found from the condition of being human. Death, sickness, addiction, affliction. But these are not unique specifically to God's children, but are experienced by all humanity. But actual persecution and suffering for the gospel is not something we experience widespread in our society. It could happen one day. And maybe that might be best for the church. But I wonder more and more if our form of suffering is found more in our sacrifice. That's where Paul's suffering began. In the things he let go of. The things he sacrificed. His position. His influence. Any potential wealth. Money was simply a means to get where he needed in ministry. Nothing more. Unless it was to raise money for the poor. Our North American culture hates the word sacrifice. But following Christ requires personal sacrifice. Friends, do you rejoice in sacrifice? Do you embrace it? We show sacrifice in things we abstain from the world all the time. There's things that we sacrifice and the world goes, why don't, why don't you do that? Why don't you partake in that? Maybe people who are neighbors or family members who aren't in the Lord or work, people we work with go, why, why do you not do this what everybody else does? We show sacrifice and obedience in the word and how we handle different issues in our society. Loving our enemies, serving the poor, protecting widows and orphans. These all take sacrifice. Particularly sacrifice from a worldly perspective. Our most precious commodities, time and money are areas where we are called to sacrifice. Yet those areas would be places the world wouldn't understand. Why give money benevolently to others, to the poor, to the building of the kingdom, when it could be used to build your own kingdom, pay for your next holiday, to travel around the world, or your next toy, or the desire of your heart. Why use your time to serve others, to see the gospel go forth, to walk with others, to help them grow in their faith, when you could use it to grow your own hobbies, to make more money, to expand your own dreams? Let me be clear, sacrifice is not about doing things. Sacrifice is about the condition of our hearts. It's about how we relate to Christ and his kingdom. But sacrifice also leads to suffering. If all of who we are and all of what we are simply is ours, we will never truly understand the glory of Christ and the joy of following him. It's in joyfully pursuing him that suffering will be endured. As I mentioned earlier, we don't have much suffering to endure. We can share the gospel. And people may say to us, I don't want to hear that, or you're dumb, or whatever. But it's not like you're going to get thrown in prison, crucified, or your head chopped off for doing it. But persecution is coming. Make no mistake. Your faith will be tested. It will be pushed back on. It will be persecuted. 
But if we can live lives now of joyful sacrifice, we will be able to rejoice in suffering. In addition to suffering as ministers of the gospel, our role as Christ's servants also involves the tireless devotion to the mission of the church. Paul continues on in the second part of verse 25 to verse 29. God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. The second thing is, we strive for the mission of Christ. We should labor for others to know the mystery of Christ, and we should labor for others to grow in maturity in Christ. Paul declares that his mission to the church was to make the word of God fully known. Paul devoted his life to this singular mission while recognizing two aspects of what that mission involved. Paul's desire was to make the word fully known both in explanation and practicality. He wanted the church to know the truth in their hearts, but also for them to see the responsibility of living this truth out and holding firm in that faith. Paul describes the gospel of Christ as the mystery hidden for the ages and generation. This mystery in relation to past generations certainly speaks of the fulfillment of God's messianic promises to his covenant people. The mystery that was previously hidden is now in plain sight. It has been revealed in Christ. The term mystery would also have spoken to the aspect of God's inclusion of the Gentiles, as we see in these verses, into God's redemptive plan. Paul makes it clear that this mystery is not for him, but one that God has given to the saints in which he is a minister of. And the word saint refers to all believers. We, you and I, receive this mystery, Christ in us, the hope of glory. As recipients of our inheritance in Christ, we have been entrusted by God with this mystery. That we might be his messengers, laboring on behalf of the nation so that God may reveal the glory of Christ through the gospel message that he's commissioned for you and I to share. Paul continues in verse 28 and 29 to talk about how he longs for and labors to see believers in the church grow in maturity. One thing that's important is Paul never differentiates between evangelism and discipleship. Paul understands his commission as part of the great commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28. Not to win converts, but to make disciples. Which is the commission for all of us. Discipleship cannot exist without evangelism. It's essential to it. These are not separate entities. Discipleship cannot happen unless someone has given their life to Christ. And everyone who has given their life to Christ needs to be discipled. Both of these do not happen on the merit or ability of people, but on the power of the Spirit working in the lives of those who have come to know Christ. In these verses, Paul identifies how we are to accomplish our mission, and he identifies its strategy, its audience, and the goal of it. So the strategy for making disciples was to proclaim him, Jesus, declaring Jesus as the sole means of salvation. By admonishing or warning and teaching. 
These terms are complementary functions. They work together. And they go beyond simply sharing the facts of the gospel. Warning would include cautioning and counseling others in light of the truth, while teaching involves informing and instructing them how to live according to the word. In addition to this strategy, we are to strategically engage others with the gospel. We do so with all wisdom, Paul says. So this phrase describes an approach that's contextualized to the meaning of the gospel, meaning that we bring the gospel to all generations. And though the manner on which how we share the gospel may change, it has changed. Some people don't like this. It has changed in the last 2,000 years. It should. Our culture is not the same. But the message doesn't. The gospel doesn't change. The centrality of that message stays the same. But we use wisdom to know how best we are to share our faith with others. The audience that Paul speaks of is simple. He says, the audience that you're to teach is everyone. That's the audience, everyone. Not some people, not the people you would prefer, not people that fit into your prejudices, everyone. Everyone is the audience. Paul knows that not everyone is going to accept this gift of grace. Yet, it's still the call on Paul's heart that everyone should hear the gospel, know the good news of Christ. The goal is to present everyone perfect, or you could use the word mature in Christ. This phrase reflects our individual growth and sanctification during our earthly life, but the ultimate focus of the idea of becoming mature is on Christ himself and the work of his spirit in us. And the spirit that is at work in others who are walking along us along the way. This is the goal that we may mature. So often the church sets the bar so low in regards to the mission of Christ and discipleship. Because our mission, our view of how we accomplish this is based on what we can do. Well, this is all the time I can spare. This is all my gifting will allow. This is, I'm just so tired Instead of asking what Christ in us wants to do, it's Christ in us the hope of glory, not Brett's strength in him of what he can do, but Christ in us the hope of glory. The mission of Christ, the heart, is to see others grow in maturity. This first happens in each individual's heart, recognizing our great need for Jesus. And this is something that Paul oozes with, even as an apostle, even as a great missionary and evangelist. He clearly continues to demonstrate, I desperately need Jesus. And then our great need for Christ to work through us and strengthen us. And this is the secret to Paul's faithful ministry. It's not his strength that Paul talks about. It's the powerful strength of the Lord working through him. For us to be effective in sharing the gospel, to be effective in the mission of Christ, we have to root ourselves in the Spirit of God. We ourselves, as we learn the Word in our individual times at home, in our personal devotion, it's not just about what we can intellectually manage. It's about being in tune with the Spirit so the Spirit can teach us the realities of Scripture that He has worked and wrote throughout history. It's in this place that we would come in unity, hear the word, but allow the Spirit to speak to us about the things that we would need to be encouraged and convicted of. It's not about coming and listening to me. How sad would that be? 
It's about coming and hearing from the Lord and what the Spirit has to say to us through the Word. Maybe we be strengthened in the power of the Spirit. May it be so with us. And may we be devoted to the mission of Christ. Paul continues on in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. He says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea. And for all who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The third thing is, is that we are to strengthen the people of the church. In these verses, Paul's efforts to encourage and build up the church provide an example for our ministry as we devote ourselves to strengthening the members of the church. And we see this in four ways. The first is that we affirm each other with our love. Unfortunately, sometimes churches aren't necessarily great at affirming each other in love. Paul's encouragement for the church begins with a personal address that affirms God's people. In the previous verses, the use of the pronoun you was much more broad and inclusive. He addressed the Colossians with the phrases like, as part of the church, the saints, everyone. But in this section, you is far more personal. It shows their individual value and identity to him. One commentator notes the transitional phrase, for I want you to know in the explanatory clause, I am struggling for you, signal a more direct address that is naturally affirming. In addition to Paul's tone, the extent of Paul's sacrifice, how greatly I'm struggling for you, conveys their value to him. Paul's struggling mirrors the term striving in the previous verse and describes the physical hardships associated with his ministry, including his his current imprisonment and his emotional and spiritual burden for them. Paul's desire for the Colossians is for their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. This affectionate expression reflects his hope for them, that they would be spiritually uplifted and united by the mutual love they share for one another in Christ. And this example shows us that we should also be people that affirm God's people with our love. Churches should be places where God's love is on display. It should be a people that love being together and genuinely care for each other. And this is essential for us before we look at these other ways to strengthen the people of the church. Because if we don't get this right, those are all going to fall flat. They're not going to come across with love. They're not going to come across with grace. They're not going to be helpful. We must have love for each other. Everything we do must come from a motivation of love. This is what distinguishes the church from the world. It is a great time in this church to consider this, how we might affirm each other in love, how we might encourage each other in this. How might we be able to show our love for one another better? How might we care and love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we can support them, encourage them, affirm them? The second way the church is strengthened is by anchoring God's people in the truth. 
in addition to affirming God's people in love, we must anchor God's people in truth. Paul's encouragement for the Colossians was not limited to just some emotional comfort. Their personal edification also included a verbal exhortation so that that they would be propelled forward in their spiritual walk. Paul desired that though their united effort in loving encouragement, that they would grow deeper in their faith and stronger in their conviction regarding the truth in the gospel. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say to the church, hey, get together, sit in classrooms, learn more. But what Paul realizes, and so many churches miss, is that by loving each other well and encouraging each other well, it actually pushes each other to grow deeper in the truth and in faith. His desire, along with the church growing in love, is that they would experience and enjoy all of the riches of complete understanding that come from the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Our individual understanding of Christ is intended to be much more than intellectual. It has to be developed and nurtured through a personal encounter with Jesus. That personal encounter, that relationship is what motivates us to know him more, to know his word more, to know his plan more. The motivation to come before the word each day is not about just knowing things. It's that we get to sit at the feet of the Savior of the world, of the Creator of the world, and that He would have relationship with us. That He would have purpose for our lives. That He would have truth for us to find complete joy and satisfaction in this difficult world. We are to come to Jesus Christ in whom are all hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's as if Paul is saying he wants the church to be anchored in truth by having an authentic relationship with Jesus, being rooted in the word of God and walking out God's love and community. The third way is that we must alert God's people to risk. Verse 4 says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. Strengthening the members of the church also includes alerting God's people to the dangerous influences of the world. Also the dangerous influences within the church that come from the world and the risk of deception. Being affirmed in our faith and anchored in Christ prepares us to discern and resist the deceptive teachings that might attempt to mislead us. This is happening in the Colossian church with these false teachers And out of genuine concern for the church, Paul cautions them. Yet rather than directly refuting whatever the specific false teaching is, he encourages believers to be grounded in what is true. Paul seems to believe the best defense for this deception was authentic discipleship, faith that is rooted in Christ. Most people think that false teaching is just blatant heresies and obvious violations of faith. And that can be true, obviously. There are notable preachers who are heretics. But usually it's far more subtle. It's counterfeits that closely resemble the truth. Or cultural lies that are camouflaged to the undiscerning heart and convincing personalities that are persuasive and seem sincere. I'll highlight a couple. One of these false teachings would be legalism. 
That may surprise you. You may think, oh, churches aren't legalistic. But it's sprinkled all throughout evangelical circles today. And it arrogantly flaunts itself in churches as minor rules and as deep preferences that are not found in Scripture. But are used as means of control and of influence in the church. Another one would be the intense idolatry idolatry that North American church has towards politics and how it's invaded the theology of evangelicalism. That one's not hard to see. Just turn on the news, listen to people preach. These are just two subtle falsities that exist all over the church today. There are more, there are many more, and like I said, there are people that are heresies, but a lot of them are subtle things that just creep in that we don't see. Where the things that we want or the rules that we want start to mold and change the church. Where the political party of influence that we have begins to adopt the way that we see the world and how we should love and encourage others. But we must be rooted in Christ and his truth. Not our truth, his truth. Fourthly, we have to assure the brothers and sisters in their faith. In the final verse, Paul is giving assurance to the church even though they are going through a difficult time with the false teaching that is happening, and even though Paul cannot be there in person because of his imprisonment, Paul still encourages them in their faith. He says, though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. He continues on with, I delight to see how orderly you are, how firm you are in your faith. Even in this difficult time of the church, Paul is relaying the message that by being firm in your faith, like you have been, this is the way to move past what you're experiencing. He assures them to keep going and doing much of what they are known for, what they started with. Stay rooted in the faith. Likewise, our faith can also be challenged by the weight of circumstances or the intimidation from our adversaries. But in Christ, we have the full assurance of our security. And through his victory, and therefore, we can encourage one another to stand firm in the faith. And this is vital to strengthening the church, is that we would come together and encourage each other in the midst of our world, knowing that as we go out, as we go on mission for Christ, to share the gospel, to love people, to serve people, we will be rejected. That's why the church is so important, because this is the place to be built up in your faith by other people. It's not just a house of learning. It needs to be more than that. It's a place to be encouraging to each other, to build each other up in faith. And so we strengthen the church by affirming each other in love, by anchoring each other in God's truth, by looking out for one another for the risks of deception, and by assuring our brothers and sisters in their faith. Being a faithful servant of Christ is something that each of us desires. There's no way that any of you who know Jesus don't desire this. That's what we all desire, is to be a good, faithful servant of Christ. And sometimes texts like this help create like a benchmark that we can look on and say, hey, how am I doing in this? What might it look like for me to live more sacrificially for Christ? Not so that I can flaunt that, but so that I might know the riches of his joy, not the joy of the world or the desires of my heart, but I would know his joy. 
What might it look like for God to call my hands and feet into action for his gospel to be known? Is there a place that I can speak it or share it? Is there people that I can walk alongside and help grow in their faith? Is there things that I can support with my hands and feet and gifting to see the kingdom grow? And what is my part in how to strengthen the church? How can I love and encourage? How can I build up in faith? How can I protect those that I I know well and encourage well? To be a faithful servant of Christ is to rejoice in our suffering, serve in the mission of Christ, and to do our part in strengthening the church. May this be our heart and our desire this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for time in your word. We just pray that you would help us be more faithful to you. It's easy to have blind spots in our faith, to have things where we look at and go, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine.